So we were reading in Nehemiah chapter 3 last week. In Nehemiah chapter 3, there's this phrase that occurs over and over again. And if you were taking the How to Study Your Bible class over in BP Academy, if you were taking that class, you would have been reminded today that things that repeat, phrases that occur or words that occur over and over again, that's important. Pay attention to that. Circle that. Connect that. That should be noticed. And when things are repeated, you're supposed to take note of them. And that happens in Nehemiah chapter 3. There is this phrase over and over again. And they built up this gate and they laid its beams and set its doors and its bolts and its bars. And then they built this gate and they laid its beams and they set its doors and its bars. And the old gate and the valley gate and the dung gate. And they set its beams and they set its bolts and its bars and, and set the door into place. And the fountain gate and the garbage gate. And they, they laid its beams, they set its doors and its bolts and its bars. So they, they put the lock set in place, and they even put one of those big beams that you could put in, slide through the door to keep it from being opened. Seems like Jerusalem was in a tough neighborhood, doesn't it? Well, it's one of the things that's fun to do if you ever visit the city of Jerusalem today, the old city in particular, uh, which those walls, again, those walls are 1500s. They're not the same walls that Nehemiah was building, although you can see some of Nehemiah's wall while you're there. But it's fun to go around the city to take a tour of all the gates. In fact, let's do that this morning. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's take a tour around the gates. First, I'll show you a map. I'll show you a sketch of where we're going. You remember I showed you this last week. There's the old city as we know it today with what's called the Turkish Wall, built around the 1500s. And then there's the, the, that purplish wall. That's the, that's the city during Nehemiah's time period. And the little circles I've put are the gates as they exist today, the gates in the old city. Some of those gates are in the same place or they're, or they're close to. Same orientation as they would have been in Nehemiah's day. The ones to the north, they're a little further north, but in the same general area. The ones on the west are just further west than they would have been before. But same general areas. The Dung Gate, of course, is, is, is moved further north because the walls don't extend as far down as they once did. So let's take a tour around the city. Let's look at the gates of Jerusalem. First, we have here the Lion Gate. This is also known as Stephen's Gate because it was the area where the gate was where Stephen was taken out when he was martyred, stoned. So there's the Lion's Gate, called the Lion Gate because there are lions on it. This is called Herod's Gate. I'm not sure why it's called Herod's Gate. But uh, it, there was a gate there in the time of Herod, though it wasn't to this one. Moving along, you see this idea of the gate being a tower. This, this is the Damascus gate because it, it faces the direction that you would then travel away from Jerusalem toward Damascus. And so you, you could take this gate. It's on the north side of the city. The Damascus gate is really good because it gives you that sense of a gate was a fortress. The gate was built with strong towers and there were guard rooms inside so the soldiers could be at the gate ready to defend the city. Otherwise, the gate, the door, that would be the easy place to break in. And so the gates were always fortified even more than the rest of the wall. And you really see that at the Damascus Gate. You can see the little slits there as well where the archers could, could uh, shoot arrows through while they're protected. You'd have to be a really good shot to get your arrow through one of those narrow slits to hit the archers. This gate is called the New Gate, and, and um, 
those people standing there actually demonstrate its purpose, that this gate was put in um, in order to make it easier for Christians who were staying nearby to enter the Christian quarter of the old city. So they built them a gate, and there's some nice Christian pilgrims there going in through the gate. This is the Jaffa gate. Uh, here, you, here you get another sense of that tower, that fortress of the gates. And this shows as well that many of the gates, when you enter the gate, you then have to take a right turn. That's so you can't be mounted on horses and just go charging right through. But you actually have to slow down, make a curve, and it gives the soldiers guarding the gate an extra chance to kill you. This is the Zion Gate. Speaking of gates as, as places of invasion, dangerous places need to be fortified. Uh, you can still see the, this is where the Israeli troops entered the old city, took it back from Jordan during the 67 war. You can still see the bullet holes around that gate that were a result of that conflict. So the Zion Gate. And then this is the Garbage Gate or the Dung Gate. This is, it's, it's, it's much further north than that would have been in Nehemiah's day, but still it, it heads out into that, that, that valley of Hinnon or the Gehenna and where the garbage was burned from outside the city. So there will be the Garbage Gate. And now the last gate, the Eastern Gate. Gate number eight, the eastern gate is the only gate in the old city that's bricked up. In fact, some of the other gates, like the Jaffa Gate, have even been made more open than they used to be. But the eastern gate is closed up. The eastern gate was bricked up by a Muslim leader who had understood the Jewish legend, as he described it, that there was going to be a great Jewish delivering king who would come and he would retake Jerusalem and reestablish uh, Israel in Jerusalem and he would enter the city through that eastern gate. Echoes of Jesus' entry. Echoes of Jesus' future entry. So what did they do? They, they blocked it up permanently with stones. They closed the eastern gate and then they put a Muslim cemetery in front of it, thinking that no Jewish king would come through that direction and be made unclean by the cemetery. And yes, Psalm 24 says, lift up your heads, O ye gates. Lift them up, ye ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And yes, he will. Just, just as Jesus on his triumphal entry came down the Mount of Olives and across the Kidron Valley and in that eastern gate into the temple precincts and inspected what he found there, so Jesus departed the city the same way. And so he will return again the same day. And he will enter that temple he will return to Jerusalem. But that's not what I wanted to talk about this morning. This morning I wanted to talk about all of those gates. Jer Jerusalem is unique as a city in that it has so many gates. But gates are important in any city. Uh, through, through the ancient world and the Old Testament as well, gates defined identity and belonging. To freely go in through the gate meant you belonged there. To be able to freely go in and out to leave the city and to return again meant that you were secure and you weren't shut in and defensive and you could come and go and you had the freedom and the right to do so. The gate identified identity and belonging. Most cities only had one gate. 
The reason for the one gate, well, the elders would sit at the gate. That's not why they had one. The one gate was because this is the weak spot. This is the spot we need to defend. If people are going to come in, this is how they're going to do it. And so the elders during the day, the leaders of the, of the community would sit in the gate, and that's where business was trans, transacted, out in the open. That's where deals were made. That's where land was exchanged. That's where Boaz um, sealed the deal for his wife, Ruth. And, and that's also the one point of entry if the city was going to be attacked, they have one gate to defend. Most cities, especially the fortress cities, had one gate. Lekish, Azika, uh, Gezer, Megiddo, Hadzor, they all have one main fortified gate. And yet Jerusalem has a bunch of gates. Jerusalem has many gates in the city. That's an interesting point. We'll, we'll come back to that. But these gates all have doors set and bolts and bars in place in order to close them. The purpose of the gates with the doors is they are intended to exclude people. The same way we lock the church doors today, the same reason. The gates are meant to keep people out. The doors are closed and barred and locked in order to exclude those who don't belong. To be able to come in and out was identity and belonging and to exclude people who do not. In fact, at the end of Nehemiah chapter 2, in verse 20, Nehemiah confronts Sanballat and Tobiah and tells them very clearly that they'd have no right, no claim, no portion, no inheritance with Israel in this city. They don't belong here. Sanballat the Samaritan has no claim. Nehemiah excludes him. Well, Nehemiah's got good precedent for that. When the exilees first returned back to Jerusalem in King Cyrus's decree about 536 B.C., they, they have the same confrontation. The people who lived at the land before them, those that the Assyrians had brought in to repopulate after they carried the Israelites away as captives, they had formed a way that they presumed that they could worship and serve in various places, they could serve this God who seemed to be of this land and of this particular area. So these were the people, this mixed race of people, with some Jewish people among them as well, intermarried, mingled together. They came up with a religion of sorts that had biblical terms, had Old Testament terminology, had some echoes of Moses in it, but was still of their own invention. And in that way, they, they, they came to those who had returned. They said, we worship God just as you do. Let us build your temple with you. And the, and the leaders then said, no, you have no part with us. This is the privilege that God has given us. It, it, it remains with us to build his temple and to worship him here. It sounds like they were exclusive. In fact, I came across a video this week of a very good ministry that, that does a great job of, of doing these overview videos of different books of the Bible. And yet they, when they do the video for Ezra and Nehemiah, they miss it. They say Ezra and Nehemiah missed it, that they were too harsh, that they were too intolerant and too exclusive, that they were keeping people out when it was God's purpose actually to invite others in. Nehemiah missed it. Nehemiah was wrong. And you're going to hear along the way something similar to that. Christianity seems intolerant. How could you be so, so proud and exclusive to think that there's only one way to God and it just happens to be your way? Well, actually, it's not my way. 
It's not your way. It's God's way. It's Jesus' way. Jesus himself, in fact, could sound very intolerant. Jesus had the audacity to say that Jesus himself, he was the way, the only exclusive way. That, in fact, he was the truth. Now, our generation knows today, well, there isn't the truth. There's your truth and my truth and their truth, and everybody's got their own truth. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I am the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. That's not me saying that. That's Jesus saying that. Sounds pretty exclusive. Sounds pretty intolerant. Sounds like uh, categories that would exclude people, that would keep people out. See, the problem is when we read historical um, things like Nehemiah and Ezra and we interpret them through contemporary lenses, Nehemiah doesn't sound very Christian, does he? Well, that's because Nehemiah is not a Christian. Well, that's scandalous. Oh, Nehemiah's in the Bible? Nehemiah's not a Christian? Well, of course he's not a Christian. Jesus has not yet come. Jesus has not yet died. Jesus has not yet risen. Nobody has yet believed in Jesus as our Savior. Nehemiah is calling the people back to a unique privilege God had given them to be a unique people who would then show something of God and his holiness and his salvation to all the nations of the earth. But they had to be a unique and different people in order to do that. And so Nehemiah is calling them back to that foundation, back to that unique and different calling. You know, today we can look into the Bible in the past from our perspective. We can say, well, look at Paul. Paul didn't oppose slavery. So Paul was obviously, we know slavery is wrong. So Paul was caught up in his own cultural milieu. He didn't see everything clearly. And so some of the things that Paul would say about marriage or he would say about leadership and elders or pastors in the church, things that he would say about homosexual acts, that, well, these are just Paul's limitations from his day. And we can't hold on to that. We can't insist on that because we know better today. Well, we know wider, but we don't necessarily know better. And, and for instance, the same thing happens today when people want to want to reinterpret uh, historical figures from, from our own nation's past, much more recently. They want to they take a, a, a hero from another century and now reinterpret that person through today's value and say, there's nobody to look up to there. And the purpose, actually, is to eliminate the past so that we can set a course for a new and different future. In fact, you will, you will be reevaluated today for tweets or Facebook posts or whatever else that you may have made three or four years ago. It now changes that quickly. But we don't interpret the past based on our perspective today. What if our perspective today actually needs to, in some ways, realign with the past, realign with what God has said before? That gates and doors are actually intended by God to keep people out. Now, I know that there's some, you have some tension with that, and let's keep that just for a little longer. This week in my devotional reading, outside of Nehemiah, I came across something similar that I thought uh, this could bear talking about. It's a story in Acts chapter 8, 
where unbelievably some of those same Samaritans, like Sanballat, ones who were descended from him perhaps, they are hearing about Jesus from Philip, one of the first deacons. Look what deacons can do. And they're hearing about Jesus, and, and they're coming to faith in Christ. And the church in Jerusalem, the Jewish church, hears that Samaritans are coming to faith in Jesus. And this is almost too much for them. They're going to send Peter and John, go, go, go out there and see what's going on. And, and Peter and John get there, and they see it. And they see these people outside of the circle of Israel who are also believing in Israel's Savior. They're also believing in Jesus. In fact, the Holy Spirit falls on them visibly just like he had in the church of Jerusalem. It's the Samaritan Pentecost, and it can't be denied. It's like God is overtly making a statement that his salvation is for Jerusalem and Judea, but also for Samaria. In fact, it will be to the ends of the earth. And so this is a pretty big deal. This is, this is an opening of the gospel in Peter and John's thinking. Yet in the midst of that, there's this, there's this Simon who's among these Samaritans. In fact, he's been a magician, a sorcerer, a practicer of magic arts. He's a spiritist at heart. And yet he's heard of this Jesus, and he's come along with the others seemingly believing in Jesus. In fact, he's apparently been baptized as well. And so we'll pick it up in Acts chapter 8, around verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, when Simon sees this Samaritan Pentecost happening that has just been described, he offered the apostles money saying, give me this power also so that if at anyone, anyone, whoever I may lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. May your silver perish with you. May you and your money be damned. That's what Peter says to him. Well, he said, well you could say it in more colorful language than that, but I will, I will desist. Peter says to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. That sounds a lot like what Nehemiah says to Sanballat. You have no lot or portion or inheritance with us. Peter goes on, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours, this wickedness of thinking that the blessing of God can be purchased with money or could be earned by you rather than freely given by God to those who believe in his son Jesus Repent, therefore, of that wickedness and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered him, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come of me. So Simon confronts him, or, or rather Peter. Simon Peter confronts Simon. He, he says, you are not with us. You are excluded. You need to go back to basics. You need to circle around and enter by the gate. You need to come in the way that God has appointed, which is there's no other way except by faith in Jesus. You cannot purchase this. That you would, you, you would see the spirit of the living God poured out upon his own people, his own children. That you would see that as simply a spiritual 
power that you can purchase the right to then manipulate and pass along to anyone else whom you desire to pass it along to. As if you would make yourself as God the bestower of his spirit. He's guilty. He's excluded. And yet Peter says, even you, it's possible to be forgiven. That that if possibly, maybe God will forgive you. That's, a, that's, a, that's an awkward statement for us because it's awkward in the Greek. But Peter is expressing, you don't want, you, you don't want me to go into the, all the nuances of, of Greek first, second, third class conditionals. Trust me on that. But I can just tell you this. Peter is expressing the possibility. And he, he doesn't express it with a, if you do and I assume you will. He doesn't express it as, if you would, but I assume you won't. He expresses it merely as an undescribed possibility. Because the only way to be forgiven is for Simon to himself call upon the Lord to be saved. To call upon Jesus for himself to save him from his guilt. Simon doesn't do that. Simon says, Simon instead turns to Peter and he wants Peter or some other man to be his priest. He wants some other person to be in between him and God. He says, no, 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 I can't do that. You pray for me. Peter, or Simon wants Peter to be his priest, but Peter says, no, he will, not, he will not become this man's or any man's pope. That we have one access to God and it is not through any other person. It is through Jesus himself who loved us and gave himself for us. And so you have this seemingly very, very um, unwelcoming, put, put off, excluding, that's the word I'm looking for, this excluding stance of Peter that you don't belong with us. You have not become one of us. It's actually Simon's story is similar to mine. I grew up in a household where there was spiritist, spirit, spirit activity. And yet, I was baptized early, at a very young age. I don't even know, I don't, I, I don't remember. I was baptized at a very young age. I was born at a very young age. Baptized soon after. And, and, and yet later on, in a particular church tradition, I, I declared belief in God. I became a member of the church. I had my own offering envelopes. Now that's what really matters, right? I've got my offering envelopes and I'm not afraid to use them. Well, I actually kind of was. But it was only after that. I'd been baptized. I was a church member. It was only after that that I actually became born again. Believed that Jesus not only died for the sins of the world, but that Jesus died for my guilt for my sin, and that I needed him not to be the Savior, I needed him to be my Savior. It was my privilege this morning to baptize Cliff Best because he had a, he had a similar experience as a child. He, he was baptized when he was very young. He believed in God generally. That's what the family did in that church tradition. And yet, uh, it was only later in his teen years that he realized that not only had Jesus died, but that Jesus died for him, and that he needed Christ as his own Savior. And he grew and he followed the Lord. He and his wife raised their, their, their two boys and he had the privilege of baptizing both of them in faith in Christ. And yet had never actually been baptized as a believer. He'd been baptized first as an unbeliever and then he believed. 
And so this morning, he stood before the church in the last service and said, I, believe, I have believed in Jesus as my Savior, and so I need as a believer to declare that faith in baptism. It takes some courage for a big, grown man like Cliff to do that before all of you scary people, and yet that's exactly what he did. There's a, there's a commentator I read that described this notion of this churchy stuff that sometimes can get in the way of, of our relationship with God. He says, quite obviously, learning from Simon, the statement of belief of water baptism, perhaps the laying on of hands, conveyed no genuine indication of the heart condition. That's hardly changed today in today's church, he says. Baptism, communion, membership, office holding, any other kind of external recognition mean nothing to God who looks directly at the heart condition. Men look on the outward things, but God looks on the heart. And he knows for each one of us, yes, you joined, yes, you were, you were dunked, but have you believed in Jesus? That's the question. That's the gate. The possible piece in there for Simon Peter conveys to us the possibility. The possibility for Simon even to be saved. The possibility perhaps for Sanballat to be included. But Peter says he can be forgiven only if he prays and asks for forgiveness. To ask God for forgiveness. There is a gate. And that gate excludes those who have not come God's way. And yet the gates and the doors are intended to provide a way for people to enter in. Gates are not only to exclude those who do not belong, but gates are to open and invite people to enter. Jesus used the analogy of a gate in terms of a, of a, of a sheepfold in, that, in those terms. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you. And he says, truly, truly, verily, verily, actually, in the Aramaic, is probably amen, amen. It's, it's important. Pay attention. He's serious about this. He says, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly by being that way of access, by being that door, by being that gate of entrance into relationship with God, but is only through him. It's interesting that in Jerusalem, the place where God's glory would be known, the place that his people would be unique, the place where other nations could come and see this is what God is like. They would see it in the holiness of his commandments. They would see it in the ugliness of the sacrifices. That, that brutality of blood shed, of an innocent animal sacrifice substitute in our place would have its life poured out as a substitute for the guilty, pointing to the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. All of that was on display in that city that God chose to put, his, to put his name on. He chose that there he would dwell among his people and there would be portrayed how to have entrance into his presence through the forgiveness of human guilt by way of a substitute who would die in our place. And ultimately it's in that city 
that Jesus himself is condemned, is crucified, dies, is buried for our sin, for our guilt. And there in that city is where Jesus is raised from the dead that we who believe in him could be raised in him. And it's that Jerusalem where all of this happens, the center of God's declaration to all the world. That city doesn't have the normal one gate that ancient cities had. It doesn't have even two gates that very few cities had. This city has eight gates, multiple gates in that time of Nehemiah as well. It's a very unusual thing because not only do gates exclude those who do not belong, but those gates and doors provide a way for people to enter in. And God is a very invitational God. His gospel is very exclusive. It's intolerant of any other way, but it is also very invitational, very inviting. He pleads with people, won't you come? I have made the way, won't you enter in? Those gates, in fact, are for those who were excluded to be invited. That's an interesting twist on the storyline, isn't it? In fact, it is the ones who, are, who were excluded who are excluded. Those are the ones, we are the ones who are actually invited. That's what the gospel has done. Is Peter being exclusionary? No. The gospel, is the gospel just for us? And people like us? No. All of this is happening. This episode with Peter and, and, and Simon, that's happening in Samaria, of all places. Among the Samaritans. And what Peter and John next do on their way back to Jerusalem is they go through village after village of the Samaritans proclaiming the gospel and inviting others in. You know what's going to happen next in Acts chapter 9? Saul of Tarsus, the chief adversary of the gospel, is going to be called by the Lord himself, and he's going to become Paul, the chief advancer of the gospel. You know what's going to happen after that? In Acts chapter 10, Peter is going to, after eating his first ham sandwich, Peter is going to go to the house of Cornelius. And there they're going to have ham sandwiches. And there Peter's going to realize that he dare not call unclean those people whom God has called clean. That God even calls a Roman officer to himself. It's a wonderful story. That the gates are so that those who have been excluded can be invited in. That's what's going on in the story. Jesus himself goes to Samaria. Remember that story in John chapter 4? That Jesus said he must go through Samaria. He had an appointment that day, in the middle of the day, when no, no, none of the women in the town would be going to the well. And so that's when this one woman came. Because in the midst of her secrets, in the midst of her shame, in the midst of the gossip that was all over town about her, she would come to the well when nobody else was there. But Jesus was there. And he knew her. And that's why he was there. And he slowly, carefully, gently, gently, lovingly peels back the layers so that she could no longer hide her guilt, her shame. He was the one who would tell her all that she had ever done. And yet that wasn't a reason for him not to talk to her. That was a reason for him to talk to her and to invite him to invite her, this woman, to that grand party 
of all of those who would worship God genuinely, freely, in spirit and in truth, because truly all that they would hide has been forgiven. It's a wonderful story. Jesus himself goes to Samaria. So God invites everyone. God invites anyone into his restoration. Why the gates? Why the doors? Because it is always on God's terms. God invites everybody, but it's on his terms. Even Sanballat could confess his false confidences in himself and his own forms of approach to God, seemingly thinking he's pleasing God in his religion, and he could submit to worshiping the true God as God has prescribed in his word. Do you ever see yourself as Sanballat? Do you ever see yourself as that proud Samaritan leader who's a little ticked off, who these people are thinking they come in and they're the ones who know the way to God, the only way to God? Do you ever see yourself as Sanballat? Well, that's exactly who we were, if we understand Ephesians 2 correctly. Don't believe that Christianity is intolerant, is keeping people that don't measure up out. That is not the gospel at all. Ephesians chapter 2 makes it clear about us so that we'll be clear on how we approach others. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11 says, Therefore remember that you at one time, you were Gentiles, outsiders among the nations in terms of your flesh, your humanity. You were called the uncircumcised, outsiders, don't belong by what is called the circumcision, circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I would submit, if you have not seen yourself as an alien, as an outsider, as not belonging, as a stranger, as having no hope and without God in the world, if you have not seen yourself first there like Sanballat, then you haven't rightly understood the gospel at all. Because it is these who were afar off, these who were outsiders. In verse 13 it says, But now in Christ Jesus you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace. If you haven't seen yourself as far off, then you probably haven't come near. But you can. That's the beauty of the gospel. Everyone can God's invitation is wide open, and yet it, is only, it has always only been his way. The gospel is like Jerusalem's gates. It is letting people in, but on God's terms. That's one of the things I'm reminded of by the gates. Have you ever thought, have you ever thought that that person probably couldn't be forgiven? Well, Peter doesn't go so far, even with Simon. You could be. What will you do? with the gospel of Jesus. Have you ever thought for yourself that you probably, that God probably won't forgive you yet again for that same sin? Have you ever thought that? That's not the gospel. Christ died for us, the just for the unjust. And it's when we see ourselves as the unjust who need him 
That's when we can grab hold of him and have the assurance. Yeah, I'm the unjust. And so he died for me, the just one, in my place, in order that he would bring me to God. That's a wonderful, safe place to be. That's the going in and going out. That's the security that is in Christ and our identity with him. Nehemiah's faithfulness to the old covenant. Nehemiah is restoring the law in its exclusion so that there, in that city, in that place, and around that temple, Israel can again be restored to their privilege of showing all the world the one true God and the way to him through the one who would die in our place. It's not a matter of keeping people out until they're good enough. No, it's a matter of coming as we are because Jesus cleanses us. Jesus makes us good enough. You see, Nehemiah is not too harsh. Nehemiah is playing his role well, but Jesus is better than Nehemiah. Jesus is better than Nehemiah because Nehemiah builds walls opens wide gates, but Jesus clears the corruption from not only that temple, but he cleanses corruption out of human hearts as well. Jesus is a better Nehemiah, and he's the one that says to us, come as you are. The gate is open, but there is only one way. It's God's way. And think of it. If God had done so much, if God had gone so far, for himself even to enter into this broken humanity in this rebellious province in his universe called earth. And he would come in and he would step into our brokenness and he in human form would allow himself even to be humiliated and rejected even to the point of death where those rebellious humans whom he had made determined that he is not worthy to live and breathe. And they would dare to take away his life on a cruel Roman cross, despise and reject him in the person of his son. And yet God would do all of that in order to provide a suitable, a big enough substitute for our guilt, for our shame, to make us right with him again. And we would dare to look at that and say, well, that's nice, that's thoughtful, appreciate the effort, but I think I've got this. Imagine. Imagine God's response to that. Imagine his rage that we would so despise the son still after all that he was done and think we could do it our way. I referred to Psalm 2 perhaps too much along the way. I think it does describe the age that we live in. Well, it's always described the, the, the era of humanity in our rebellion against God. And so it says, why do, the, why do the kings of the earth and the rulers rage together, plotting a vain thing against the Lord and against his Christ, saying, let us cast off their cords from us. We will not have this man rule over us. Who made God the boss of me? Well, God did. Yeah, sure. And the Lord of heaven laughs, just as you did. He holds their rebellion 
in derision. It's silliness. It's foolishness. Who do they think they are? He says, I, 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 have, I will set my king on my holy hill of Zion. This is up to God, and God will perform it. And, and, and he will rule. He, he is coming. He will enter into a gate that people think they can barricade and close. He is coming. And yet, have you noticed how Psalm 2 ends? That psalm that speaks of the assurance of his coming, even in judgment for those who persist in rebellion against him. And yet he says, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, the same ones that rage against him. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with, with trembling. Kiss the Son. Embrace the Son. Love God's Son. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. And here's the close. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Oh, the gates, the doors, the bars, the bolts, they do exclude those who belong. But the beauty of it all is that gate has been thrown wide open in Jesus who says, I am the way. And just as surely as no one can come to the Father except by him, Jesus' favorite word seems to be whoever. Whoever will believe in him, through him does, come to the Father, restored back into right relationship with God. That's God's invitation, and that's why it's our invitation. You be as intolerant as Jesus was who said he is the way, the truth, and the life, and you be as open and inviting as Jesus himself was, who said that whoever believes on him will not perish like Simon, but will have everlasting life. God has set before each person an open door, a door only they themselves can enter in or perhaps turn away from. And that might be true for you this morning. As I look at among you, some of you I've known for many years. Some of you I've known somewhat at a distance. Some of you I don't really know well yet at all. But I would ask you this. Maybe you're not unlike me as I was years ago. In church, in fact a member, had my own offering envelopes. And it didn't matter where the hill of beans. I needed Jesus. And one day somebody told me that. And it was just in the sharing of his word. And I saw that not only did Jesus die for the sins of the world, but Jesus died for me, for my guilt, for my shame. That I could be clean and fully accepted by God because of him for me. Maybe today's the day when you would move from church or religion or any other confidence to coming as you are to Jesus only. Or maybe that's your heart's desire for somebody you know, someone close to you. Let's pray that way. Father, first of all, I want to come to you this morning, Lord, and, and with all those who are here. And Father, there are many here who would say, yes, Lord, I am so grateful for Jesus as my Savior. I need thee indeed every hour. Father, our only way to come before you is to come in Christ and in his forgiveness. And yet, Father, perhaps there's, there's one this morning who this would be the day, right where they are, they would say in prayer to you, God, today I believe you concerning Jesus.
as my Savior, who not only died for the sins of the world, but who also died for me. Father, I I trust him then as my Savior from my sin and my guilt to restore you, to restore me into your presence. I believe that in Jesus' name. And Father, we would pray the same for someone we know, someone we care about, someone who right now is excluded, or perhaps somebody who feels excluded. Perhaps they feel that they could not come, that God would not have them. And yet Jesus himself said, the one who comes to me in faith, I will in no way ever cast out. Oh, Father, would you use us even to pass along that message, that invitation, that open door for someone near to us, dear to us, to also believe in Jesus as their Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.